0: The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, which I hope you do, please open it to the Lord's Prayer, as we have come to call it, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 6, we will look to verses 5 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. If you've been with us on Sunday morning, you know we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by uh, the eyewitness, the Apostle Matthew himself. Uh, We have, since chapter 5, been looking to the Sermon on the Mount, this great, uh, deep teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, To refresh your memory back to... A few weeks ago, we began chapter 6, where Jesus begins confronting the hypocrisy of empty religion. uh, The hypocrisy of doing good deeds, religious works even, uh, only to be seen by other people. Um, We were presented with this hard truth that you can be religious in the sight of people, in the sight of man, and not be righteous in the sight of God. You can do good things that other people see. Uh, Jesus addresses three particular works, of, that of uh, almsgiving, that of prayer, and that of fasting. Those were sort of three pillars of religious life in that day and age. Uh, and he addresses those three in particular, but it applies to the whole gamut of religious activity for us today. That, that you can be here this morning and look the part and play the part and talk the part and yet be far from God whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it really is a heart examination to, to reveal to us that the law not only condemns us in action, but also in the heart, and that God sees not merely the action, but God sees the heart. He sees the inner man. He sees the motives behind the actions. And Jesus warns even in verse 1, if you're doing these things to be seen by other people, God, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. You've got your reward. That's the praise of man. God sees the heart. Two weeks ago, we began in this same passage, verses 5-15, through to look to Jesus' teaching specifically on prayer, on praying. Uh, We looked to the verses surrounding the Lord's Prayer that, that revealed to us how we ought to pray. How we ought to pray. To remind you, we are to pray in private. We're not to make a public spectacle of our praying to be seen by others, but we're to pray in secret, and the God who sees and hears us in secret will reward us openly, Jesus says. We're to pray sincerely, we're to pray with the words of our heart, not merely empty words of, of vain repetitions or babblings like the pagans do. We are to pray with confidence, knowing that God hears us, that He's our Heavenly Father, that He knows of our need even before we ask of our need. And we're to pray with purity, and to pray with a pure heart that's forgiven others before we seek forgiveness from the Lord. Last week we looked at how we ought to pray. This week we're going to look particularly at what is called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's really the prayer the Lord Jesus gives to His disciples that we ought to pray. But we call it the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look to the Lord's Prayer and we're going to see what the content of our praying ought to be like. What 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 ought to fill the prayer requests that we make before our heavenly Father. Let's read verses 5 through 15 this morning. Follow along as I read aloud. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut uh, the door, Pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I was in high school, played on the baseball team, and there was a good thing that we did before every game. We would, even at a public school, gather together, take a knee, and we would recite the Lord's Prayer. We would recite this prayer that the Lord Jesus gave. I, as a believer, obviously found more meaning in these words being prayed than many of the others on the baseball team, especially those that were just nominally Christian and really had no idea what they were even saying, never gave much thought even to the words that they were reciting. Uh, I've come to realize many take this Lord's Prayer and they use it almost like a, a good luck ritual. Uh, Just like for many on a baseball team saying the Lord's Prayer, it really meant if we do this, perhaps we'll stay safe as we play, won't have any injuries, and maybe even we'll win a ball game. And so it became part of a a sort of religious ritual that that had very little true meaning in the lives of those reciting it. You can think, to, to even within certain churches, within the Catholic Church, part of paying penance may be to recite our Father, 30 times to recite this prayer, 30 times to to so many people pray this prayer and they, they don't truly understand it. They don't truly pause to reflect, to think about the depth of the meaning of the phrases even. Though short, this prayer is filled with such beauty and such meaning, they, they seldom pause to reflect rightly upon it. Realize that Jesus didn't give this prayer to be an empty, memorized prayer that we recite to the Lord over and over again.
1: It's found even in verse 9, where
0: Jesus says, In this manner, therefore pray. Jesus doesn't say, pray this prayer and then give them this prayer. He says, in this manner, in this fashion, in this likeness. He's not giving to us a prayer that simply ought to be put to memory and recited and regurgitated over and over and over again as so many use the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's not wrong to pray the Lord's Prayer, but it's wrong to pray it empty. It's wrong to pray it without true thought and heart expression behind the words that you're praying. And it is wrong to pray it over and over and over again and that be the extent of your prayer life. Jesus is not setting for up, up, us up here for a script that's to be memorized and recited. He's giving to us a, a pattern He's giving to us an example, a model that we're to, to follow as we are praying, that I, to guide and direct the prayers that we pray. What I want to do this morning is simply examine this prayer, this model, this example that the Lord Jesus gives to us. I, I want us to take it line by line, and, and I pray that we take each line and we apply it not only to our praying, but also to are living. And what I want to give to you this morning is not my own outline. Uh, Jesus actually gives us the outline. You realize this sermon, or this prayer rather, it is actually an outline of our prayers, what our prayers ought to be. If I were to give it a sermon outline, I would just convolute it a little bit and, and rob you of the beauty of the outline Jesus gives. And so I want to do something really simple this morning. I just want us to take the Lord's Prayer and to break it down. To take it line by line and to think in, in depth just for a moment this morning about what the Lord's Prayer actually means and about how each line ought to be a, a direction, a guidance for the prayers that you and I pray. Just to give you a little bit of the structure of this prayer before we dive into it, there are six petitions that are being made in this prayer, and it's easy to break them up into two categories. The first three that are given are are God-centered petitions. They're they're directed towards eternal things. They're directed towards God and the, the greatness of God's work in humanity, in time even itself. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. God-centered petitions, three, and then there are three man-centered positions, earthly focused petitions. Lord, give to us as day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Three God-centered petitions, followed by three earthly-centered positions, man-centered petitions. If you and I are honest in an examination of our prayer lives, we often only we go right to the bottom three. And even of the bottom three, we go right to the physical needs most of all. Give us this day our daily bread, although we more likely pray, give us this year our yearly bread so we don't have to come back to you and we'll be self-sufficient for the rest of it if we want to really be honest. I think a part of the reason our prayer life is often so shallow and so lacking is that we we get these orders wrong or we fail, all, fail completely to even pray of things of eternal perception of eternal value, of eternal worth, the the name of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God, and yet Jesus sets before us a pattern whereby those are predominant, those are the priority, those are, are actually what come first, and then our needs follow the reality of God's workings in the cosmos, in the grand scheme, the grand plan of redemption, the kingdom of God, the will of God, the name of God. And so with that brief overview of the structure We're going to quickly navigate through each line, pay attention, each line of this prayer of our Lord. First, our Father in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven, if we do the old King James language. We are so familiar with calling God Father that we lose the the mystery in it, and even the shocking nature of the very fact that we get to call God by that name, by that title, that the God of the universe, God Almighty, may be called upon by us with the title Father. Now, Father is more of a formal title. If I went to my dad and said, Father... He knows this asking for money or something. Father, may I have some money? It sounds like it's formal. We, in English, I think, I don't know, this is just my speculation, but I kind of like to think Father has become such a formal title because we use it for our Heavenly Father. We use it for God. And so with that formality even, that word has not become, it is not as commonplace as it would have been in the hearers of Jesus' audience, the listeners that heard Him first say this. I think it would be ba- better for us to understand the shocking nature of this term if we use the word dad. That's more of our down-to-earth terminology. Hey, dad, what you doing after church today? Hey, dad, you, you realize that we are called here to address God as dad who is in heaven? Now, now don't, don't lose respect in that title. You have reverence and respect for your dad. But, but it, it does make it more personable. This, this word, father, deals with a a closeness of proximity, deals with a a care and concern that that I would even have for my three kids and that many of you as fathers would have for your your children where you dearly love them and are there to navigate their lives to help them and provide for them and guard them and protect them and and do what is best for them. We turn to God to pray to God Almighty and we get to call Him by that title, those who are the children of God, Father! Father! that God is nearby and He's close to you and he, he cares for you and He knows what you're going through, that even as you call out to Him and express the, the needs of your life, you realize that it's already been said in verse 8 that your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. You're not begging or pleading or informing Him. No, He knows the need and He is your Heavenly Father who cares for you so, so, so deeply He gave Christ to die to redeem you. Don't lose the, the the address that we get to come before God with. We we call him our dad, our father, who is in heaven. So he's not he is close, but he's not one of us. He's not of us, he is of heaven, his dominion is of the universe, his throne is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. He's infinitely greater and higher, larger than you and I ever could imagine being. He resides in the heavens. But, but He's also Father who's there. He's also close and nearby. You know, I've kind of thought and debated this. I know some people, and I don't, I don't know where I land on it, honestly. I'll just be open and honest. There are people who pray to Jesus and pray directly to Jesus. Is there anything wrong with that? Or they pray even to the Holy Spirit. Maybe a song even that's sung, that's sung to the Holy Spirit and not addressed to the Father. Or a song that is sung to Christ. And not to the Father. I can't say there's anything wrong with talking and praying to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. Um, They're persons. It's right to address them as persons. However, what I can say with biblical authority is the model given to us in the Bible is that we address our prayers to the Father. Uh, We pray to God the Father and we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit And then we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not included in this prayer, but it is Jesus delivering this prayer. And then later in the New Testament, we see whatever we ask in the name of the Son uh, will be granted in the will to the glory of the Son. And so we have developed that habit of even closing our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. We are asking this ultimately for His honor, for His namesake, for His glory. It's not just a ritualistic ending to our prayers. There's great meaning behind it. But we do address our prayers to The Heavenly Father. I I would say the primary means of your praying ought to be to the Father through the Spirit in the name of the Son. Our Father in heaven, second line, hallowed be your name. Anybody in here this past week used the term hallow in your daily conversation? Anybody? Anybody in the past year used the word hallowed outside of this context in your daily conversation? Maybe, probably not. How many of you watched Jeopardy! back in June? The question was brought before them, the puzzle that was worth $200. They were asked the question, it read as follows, Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, and then it was blank, this be thy name. And those three Jeopardy! geniuses sat there in silence with a blank, confused look on their face. They did not know that Matthew 6, 9, the Lord's Prayer, read, Hallowed be your name. It's not a word that we use often. And I fear even when we hear the Lord's Prayer song or read it or speak on it as we're doing now, few really understand the great, grand importance of this line of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed means revered. It means, really it's, it's coming from the root to be holy, to make holy. Holy meaning consecrated, set apart, set above, set beyond. But when you say hallowed be thine, Hallowed be your name. What you are petitioning, what you're asking God is, God, let your name be above all other names. Let your name be consecrated among all people everywhere. Be set apart from all things and all all other names and anything at all that could ever compete with you. God, may your name be exalted among all things and all people and all names ever. Hallowed, Lord. Hollow it be your name. May it be treasured and valued above all things that can be treasured and valued in the universe. John Piper would argue that this petition is really the utmost petition of all the, the requests in the Lord's Prayer. That it's this petition that really is the priority from which all the others flow and for which all the others actually serve And I I believe he is right in that assessment. That this line of the Lord's Prayer that so many don't even understand because of the archaic word hallowed, that that, that you're missing the grand point of praying altogether and even the grand emphasis in all of our living and the trajectory of our lives and the purpose of our living, hallowed, holy, consecrated, revered, treasured, valued, be the name of God. John Piper wrote this in reflection of the Lord's Prayer in this point that I'm making. He, he wrote this prayer. My one great passion, nothing is more clear and unshakable to me than that the purpose of the universe is for the hallowing, the exalting of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His will is done for That. Humans have bread sustained life for that, that God's name may be exalted. Sins are forgiven for that, that God's name may be exalted. Temptation is escaped for that, that God's name may be hallowed, may be exalted. And he concludes, Lord, grant that I would in all my weakness and limitations remain close to the one clear grand theme of my life, your magnificence not only our praying, but even our living. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That the end of our lives even is that the the name of God may be exalted in and through us. You realize when you come to grab hold of this great deep doctrinal truth, it radically changes your living and it radically changes your praying. So many pray in a way that would be comparable to somebody finding a lamp and rubbing the lamp and a genie popping out. So many pray to God like that, and all they have are their three wishes that they hope he can meet, and that's the extent of their prayer life, because they don't grasp this truth. that the point of their living, and therefore the point even of their praying, is that God's name would be hallowed, that God's name would be exalted and treasured above all things and all names in the world. Most of us only pray for earthly success and prosperity and blessing and healing. If we examined our prayer life, they'd fit under those categories of success and prosperity and blessing and healing. And you realize when you come to understand that the utmost petition that can be made is for the exaltation of God's name, that those things become secondary and even subservient to the the petition of God having an, an exalted name, of God's name being known throughout the earth, the glory of God being manifest. Few of us pray prayers such as this, Lord, if my failure means Your exaltation, let me fail. Lord, if my poverty means Your exaltation, make me poor. Lord, if my cursing means Your exaltation, make me cursed. Or how about this one, Lord, if my death means your exaltation, Lord, take my life. We don't pray like that because we miss the main purpose of life altogether. It's not for our temporal health and wealth and success and prosperity. Our our end goal and aim, even in our sufferings, especially in our sufferings, is that the name of God be exalted. Exalted. That people would see, even in our hurt and in our pain, our faith in the Lord and our hope in a future redemption and restoration that is literally out of this world, and it speaks so powerfully, it shines a light so bright, that those who are scared to death of death, look at it in amazement. How come you're not afraid to die? How come you could endure with even a joy and a peace that passes all understanding the loss of a loved one? of your own passing. When Christians suffer well to the glory of God, it is an amazing declaration of the the worth of God's name, the the value, the exaltation, the, the hallowing of the name of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come kingdom, generally defined as God's rule over his domain. So generally, yeah, you could say the whole universe is the kingdom of God, generally speaking. Specifically, as the Bible often uses it, though, it's dealing in particular with the reign of God through his son over his people. Jesus is speaking just in a few verses prior to this, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is bringing about a kingdom. He is creating for Himself a people. He is creating for Himself a a kingdom that was to come. A kingdom that came even in a way through Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. It's been inaugurated. It's here even now amongst the, the people of God in God's rule and reign over us, but it's already and yet to come. There is an earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom, that will come where there will be perfect peace as Christ reigns with a rod of iron. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where all will be truly restored and redeemed and all the former things eternally done away with. There will be that eternal kingdom that, that is coming where Christ will rule and reign eternally in perfect peace. The kingdom of God. Lord, your kingdom come. We ought to pray for the kingdom of God as it has come, as it is coming, and as it will come, that God is actually incorporating our little minuscule lives in that work. There's a great mystery in it if you really think about it. There's a profound mystery that you and your little problems, you and your little life, out of all the lives on planet earth even right now, God is caring and concerned about you and is actually using you and even your sufferings and trials to bring about His kingdom. He's using the prayers even that you're praying in order to accomplish the, the bringing about of His kingdom. It gives a much greater power to the prayers that we pray. It gives a much greater responsibility even in the prayers that we pray. It gives a much greater even perception of life in general and the problems that we're walking through when we get this eternal mindset, when we begin by praying for things of eternity and not just things that are earthly. Lord, your kingdom come. My sufferings are preparing for me an eternal way to glory that is beyond compare, Paul says, because he's thinking eternally of the kingdom of God that is even being brought about through his life, through his sufferings. And we just want to ask God for health, wealth, and prosperity. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, right now, in heaven, there is no being who would dare deny the command of God. There's perfect obedience. There was one named Lucifer who tried. It didn't work out so well for him. And all the other angels, in a sense, have learned their lesson. And they're there in the glory of God. They're seeing the might and splendor of God. In the presence of God in heaven, His will is perfectly accomplished. However on earth, I know a handful of people that would tell me God doesn't even exist know a number of people who are living in complete disobedience to the commands that God has given, though they say He exists. God in His patience and really His loving kindness, willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and forbearance. He, he holds off the immediate wrath that is due to sinners. And for a season on earth, there are many who go against His revealed will. There are many who sin and even deny his very existence. In our prayer uh, to be God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a prayer that really first begins with you and me, that, that we would be the ones who stand against a wicked and perverse culture and generation that, that seek his will, that follow his ways and obedience, that as we pray, before we even get to making petitions about our, our needs, we, we ought to be thinking about the calling of our life to pursue the will of God in obedience to his word and obedience to his commands. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the third, or the fourth rather, petition, give us this day our daily bread. We finally now get to the earthly focus, the earthly needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Really the line that would define most of our praying and the extent of most of our praying. Lord, give us what we need. Is it wrong to turn to God and ask of Him for what we need? Absolutely not. God delights in the prayers of His people. God delights when we turn to Him for our every need. He knows our need. He works to meet our needs and promises He will meet our needs. But He loves it. He rejoices in it when we seek that need to be fulfilled through Him. Our daily bread, our bread, the the necessities of life. Not dealing with our luxurious wants and desires. Sometimes He overly blesses us in a way where we enjoy things, especially in our day and age and in our culture. We enjoy so much that we don't need, that we have so many comforts and blessings galore. But even in that type of culture, there are needs um, to make it through a financially rough time, a rough season, to sicknesses and, and variety of different things that even in a posh culture like we've got, uh, we still have our troubles to turn to God and ask Him, give us this day our daily bread. If you go back to Exodus chapter 16, you find the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness uh, there before entering the promised land. And they were hungry and there was no food to be had. There were no animals in the desert for them to to eat off of. There was no way to plant a, a crop there in the desert as they were wandering, traveling. They were murmuring, complaining. Moses consulted God, called out to God, and God God literally rained down bread from heaven. Imagine walking outside. I'm thinking the kids' movie, spaghetti and meatballs or something, and the food's fallen from the sky. It happened! Bread fell from the sky. Literally. They, in their hunger, were miraculously provided for by God. But Moses commanded them do not save up an, uh, a storepile for tomorrow. God commanded Moses to tell them that and they did and worms ate it and, and and it soured and and was corrupted where they couldn't eat it the next day and God rained down manna again. It was only on the Sabbath that they were to store up enough for the, the Sabbath day, but every other day of the week they daily had to wake up and turn to God and say, "God, we need you today." God, will your your manna be here today as it was yesterday?" I know You're faithful. I will seek you. God was teaching His people that to daily turn to Him, to provide for them, to not build up a stockpile whereby we only need God here and now we can live this long without Him until we run out and then we need Him again. I think a lot of believers live that way because of the securities of our life in this day and age. We don't need God for our daily needs because we've got a bank account and a grocery store. Some of you only need God on Sunday morning. Some of you only need God once every three or four Sunday mornings when you cycle through. <laughs> and then Monday through Friday, what, what, what do you do? You live your own life as if God, you're not dependent upon Him. And there's, there's a lesson in this prayer even. Give us this day our daily bread. That daily, when we wake up tomorrow, we ought to be praying, God, provide for me what is needed for today. And as we go and partake of a meal, we do bow our head and ask a blessing upon it to give thanks. God, thank you. Even though I know I worked a job that got the money that that has bought this food and a farmer grew it, I know behind all of that is your sovereign hand. You've given me the job. Every good gift comes down from you. God, thank you for this food. Thank you for the financial means to purchase it and the farmer that grew it, the rain that you gave and the seed that was there and to give God thanks, to understand your dependence upon Him for everything, and to never live one one millisecond thinking that you exist in your own standing, by your own merit, in your own strength, But, but to constantly be dependent. God, I need you. I need you every hour. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Now, we hear the word debt, and we think financial debt. Some of you think, oh, i got some debt. God, forgive my debt. That's not dealing with financial debt. This is dealing with moral failure, moral debt, so to speak. Uh, Luke translates it, uh, records it rather, as sins, our trespasses, our iniquities. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. Have any question about why we must forgive others? That's what verse 14 and 15 explain. That if you've not really forgiven others of their trespasses, you can't go with the right heart before God and honestly seek His forgiveness. That requires humility. And you've got pride and arrogance in your heart if you won't forgive others of their little failures against you when your sin is against the perfectly holy, just God Almighty. And so you've got to forgive others. Forgive us our sins, Lord, we pray, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. This is not just a prayer that you pray once for salvation. This is should be a daily prayer of the believer. Confession of sins. Now there is a false view that's out there, Christian perfectionism, that believes that once you come to Jesus, you are to live sinlessly, and you're never to sin again. I don't even have to look at God's Word to prove that wrong. All I've got to do is ask, how's that working out for anybody in the room? <laughs> Did you come to Jesus and never sin again? No. It's not long after coming to Jesus and believing upon Him that we find, my goodness, i still got an old man inside me. i still got a sin nature. I still want to do things that aren't right, but I've also got a Holy Spirit now within me convicting me and telling me, no, there's a new life in Christ, and you're to seek Him and you're to follow Him. And when you mess up, you're to confess. You're to turn to God and confess your sins before Him. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I believe in the context that's written to Christians, to believers, that there is a need of confession. Daily, even, coming before God, an examination of our heart, first of all, in relationship to others. Am I harboring any bitterness before others that I need to humble myself and, by the grace of God, extend forgiveness before I turn to God even and confess, Lord, forgive me for this, forgive me for that. I'm a sinner who only stands in your grace. And if you think you don't need to ask forgiveness of sins, I guarantee you, you need to ask forgiveness for pride and arrogance because you've gotten to a place where you think you can do it on your own confession is a daily reminder even it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are greatest need that you have is the confession of sin now one offshoot of that I want to address if you die with unconfessed sin there's people say well if I daily have to confess my sins what happens if I die with unconfessed sins in my life does that mean I die and go to hell even though I believed upon Christ absolutely not Do I need a priest to come pray a prayer over me for the unconfessed sins in my life so I don't go to purgatory and I get to go to heaven? Absolutely not. You are saved. And your sins forgiven past, present, and future by the atoning work of Christ. When you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You become a child of God. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are justified in the presence of God eternally. You will die even if you die in great unconfessed sin. You are His child. The blood of Christ is sufficient to atone for your sins. You are relationally always a child of God. You say, well, what does sin do in a believer's life? It, It separates the fellowship that you have with God. Not the relationship, but it celebrates the daily communion, the daily walk with the Lord that you ought to have as a child of God. And and, and there are consequences earthly to that sin, and there's even loss of reward eternally for that sin in a believer's life. And that is where the daily need of confession comes in, that we daily, in humility, renew our standing in the grace of God by saying, God, I have sinned, I confess. Forgive me. Thank you for the blood of Christ that not only cleanses me eternally, but even cleanses me now in this moment, in the present time, daily. Lord, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then lastly, the sixth petition. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Not only do we pray for the forgiveness of present sin, but we pray that God would protect us from future sin. That He would guard our hearts from future sin. Lord, deliver us from temptation. Now, God never tempts any man. Neither is He tempted with evil. He can test us. A test is different than temptation. A test is to reveal character. A test has an end goal of success. Temptation has an end goal of failure. It has an end goal of destruction. Okay, Satan is the tempter. Satan is the one who throws the trap to make you fall. God may allow and permit even that temptation, may it test you in order to reveal character, in order to even manifest the hallowedness, is that a word, of his name, the exaltation of his name. God tests, Lucifer tempts, and the prayer given here for us to model, model is, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Would you guard my feet, my life, my eyes from, from temptation, from seeing things I ought not to see that can lure me away from you? Keep me from the evil one, uh, the one who's roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a world of temptation all around us and there is a tempter who is out to make you fall. It is good to realize that and to seek God and say, God, give me strength to stand and even guide me and protect me and guard me from any temptation that may come. And we will let, for sake of time, Jesus' closing be our closing. This ending doxology for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's God's kingdom. God is the one... Building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. God is the one working all things to their appointed end. God is the one who has exalted the name of Christ above every other name, that, that all will bow before him and confess him as Lord and as Savior. God is the one who will redeem you. God is the one who will restore you, even in the new heaven and in the new earth. It is God's work. It is God's kingdom. For yours, God, is the kingdom. And the power. God's the one who has the power to accomplish that which He desires. You do not. There's a great comfort when you come to realize that. God is God and I am not. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And therefore, yours, God, is the glory. It's all for the exaltation of Your name forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come Thank you that we may call you our Dad, who is in heaven. Lord, you, as a Father, is or was with His child. You, you are with us, and you love us, and you care for us, and you are near us. Lord, you are also in the heavens. That you are truly God Almighty, and you are the one who is at work in our lives, even in our sufferings, in ways that we will never, never comprehend in the here and now. But someday, I know, we'll look back and see Your hand at work. It's all unfolded and. Hey, we can understand it looking back, but well, God, you see it all. Thank you for your love, for your care, for your mercy that's over us, Lord. We do pray that your name would be exalted above every name. That even here, especially among us in this church, that you would be the end of all that we do. That your glory, your fame, your majesty would be the purpose that drives us for everything you would help us to be a witness to your name and all that we do and all that we are lord we ask and we pray that your kingdom would come lord it's here already in a sense we we've seen it through Christ and what it did for us but goodness we wait what we wait we await that day when Christ returns lord when it's truly here and we see it in its fullness that your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven that lord your perfect peace will come that you will establish justice, that you will do away with all the wickedness and all the sin and all the atrocities that we do. Lord, we we ask your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, you know our need before we even ask of it. Even this morning, though we are so greatly financial stability, something some that just need encouragement through a hard time. Lord, your grace is sufficient, we pray. Meet those needs for Christ's name's sake. Lord, we pray you forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Lord, Be our sinners who stand only by your grace, and even now in this moment, your grace keeps us and sustains us. And so we ask, forgive us, give us hearts of grace to fathers that or could be tempted with their eyes, or even mothers that could be tempted into discouragement and comparisons, and all the many ways that even tomorrow at work, some